0: my favorite things about running Slub for the 14 ungodly years I decided to do that was getting to write at length about writers I cared deeply about. These tended to be obscure writers because, I mean, who is everyone else reading? Like, pretty white girl personal essayists? Brooklyn autofiction? That's disgusting. No, but uh, for a long time I had this place where I could talk to whoever I wanted and pretend like other people cared too. I found Mia Gallagher the same way I found a lot of writers I fell in love with. I was in a bookstore and having a conversation with a nice young man who worked there and he said, oh, have you heard of this? And no I hadn't because I was in Ireland and her book Hellfire wasn't published outside of there. And it was one of these massive 500 page books and at that moment I was kind of dying because I was staying on a farm and pig shit got washed into the wells. and with all the rain, and so I was currently spending most of my time on the bathroom floor, either post-vomiting or pre-vomiting or somewhere in between, and I needed something massive and friendly and engrossing to distract me from my impending death. But here was my other favorite thing about Bookslut. Authors, if they are good and not Nicole Krauss or whoever, are interesting and think about things, and you don't even have to have read their books to want to hear what they're thinking. So my contributors would go out and interview people I had never even heard of, and I would get to read these conversations, and it was a treat. Unless it was some guy writer making jokes about how he can't go out and have fun anymore because his wife won't let him. And yes, we got that all of the time. And I'd have to tell the poor contributor, we are not letting this motherfucker on our site. So please, please go talk to somebody else who isn't an asshole. Which is to say, Mia Gallagher and I discuss her new book, Beautiful Pictures of the Lost Homeland, which, again, is only available in Ireland so far. And again, it's massive and beautiful, and I was dying again this time as I read it, but only emotionally this time, and it was very good company. And we talk about it, but we also talk about gender and historical responsibility and how wonderful post-war German writers are and so on. So even if you haven't read this book or even heard about it because it's not available where you are, I think you should listen to this conversation anyway. Because it's always nice talking to an intelligent, fascinating woman, no matter what she decides she wants to talk about. I would like to begin with a bit of a ramble, and I promise I'm going to get to a point if you'll just um, (laughs) bear with me. Um, But I was reading um, the beautiful pictures of the lost homeland around the time that I saw um, this play by Taylor Mac called Here, Here, which is um, H-I-R. And I had this sort of similar experience where after I was done with both, I have this feeling of, of how both works seem wholly of this time and are speaking to this specific time that we're living in and how rare that feels in art these days, that it's not sort of like having some sort of throwback to, um, or, or feeling sort of old-fashioned or out of date. Um, and it's interesting to me that... In both works, there's a trans character. And I don't think it's that the character is trans that makes it sort of modern in the way that, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, young adult novelists are now told, you know, if you want to be relevant, you should put in like a queer character or, a, mm. or you know. So it's not that, but it's that using um, this entry point in order to kind of question these gender norms um, that are sort of taken for granted in so much of art and literature these days of this is how women behave and this is how men mm-hmm. behave. Um, does that make sense to you? Like, it just seems yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, um,
1: well, I guess, yeah, I mean, it's such a big question. and. Um, Like I've always been fascinated since I was a kid, I've always been fascinated with trans identity. So I think maybe, um, and with the playwright you're talking about, I'm not sure you know, when they were born or when they grew up. But I think, well, I think there's a few different things going on here. I mean, like there's my own personal um, baggage or history or wherever, where I'm coming from in terms of my relationships with gender and my relationships with gender roles. And say growing up in Ireland in the 1970s um, and having mother who was a kind of quasi-feminist, very feminist in her actions, though she might've felt a bit uneasy with that term. But also, you know, a very particular type of Ireland that was coming out from a theocracy where women really were second class citizens and feeling like, oh, very conflicted in a way that I don't think maybe feminists of the 90s felt about gender. So feeling like, Jesus Christ, I don't think I want to be, I don't think I want to be pigeonholed as a woman. And then also for me, I mean, I was always really fascinated with twins and doubling and gender identity and gender fluidity. Um, So like when I was a kid, like I loved theatre and my mum introduced me to Shakespeare at a very early age. And I... Absolutely loved the cross dressing. I mean, when I was a when I was a, a child, when I was three, like I I had a cowboy belt and a and, and a gun and and I you know I really was fascinated with being a pirate or being a cowboy. So I didn't identify really with the whole pr- princess thing or with that. And it was something about there seemed to be a lot more um, scope and variation and um, beyond. Like it seemed very limited to be to be those those overtly feminized roles, whether it was a princess or whether it was even in fiction, you know, like I'd get, I absolutely irate at, and I'd be reading the Brontes, the the way that the women were treated. And the, the there was one, I think it was an Anne Bronte book and The Tenant of Willful Hall, I think. And the sister had to basically facilitate and serve the brother, which was kind of their experience with Bramwell. But I think... Um, so I, I would have felt very frustrated, but I'm also really curious and fascinated by this idea that you didn't have to be always the same thing. So Viola could be Viola, but she could be Sebastian. That's Twelfth Night. That um, And there was something really interesting to me about passing, about pretending. So, um, like, I think I'm probably... Gender fluid ish myself, but I wouldn't say, oh, I never would have felt an, an urge to transition or I wouldn't feel like I'm a man. I, I just feel, you know, like probably if I was 20 years younger, I'd probably be looking for um, they, them, and their as pr- pronouns. Um, Because I, I, I think there's something about that. So that would have been my own personal sort of fascination. I always used to play like dressing up games where I loved dressing up as a girl who was dressing up as a boy. You know, so layers of mask and... And, and also that, like, to take on a role, kind of, I, I love that idea of that a role opens up something that you haven't, that a person hasn't realized before in their own psyche. So that, that interests me. Um, but I think as well, like, on a big political level, like, identity politics are the big politics, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Who are you? Who do you believe in? Who do you identify with? Who do you identify against? I mean, this is the whole can of worms that we're, we're facing in the late Late twentieth century, early twenty first century, you know, and it's it's a, it's a mess, you know. Um, uh, so and a lot of that is so it's so layered and nuanced and intersectional. So you know, like, you know, I'm Irish, but I'm part German, and then my my grandmother's history, you know, she was German but her mother came from from a part of europe that's now poland so does that make me polish german irish and then like where did my where did my 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 fa- my grandfather on my dad's side he was uh, born in cork but came from their family came from Donegal and they moved, you know, and and it's like, actually, I think there's something about maybe the trans, not as a trope, because that kind of reduces it. And people who are trans have very specific experiences and that varies from individual to individual. But there is something about the idea of moving from one state to another that I think is ultimately very human, like we're not consistent. We aren't the mask that we present to the world we are full of messes and contradictions and i think that's a very human thing then you've got on top of it this particular context we're living in where you're you're defined by what you are like in so many like even down to everything i everything i do like even on the internet I have to. I have markers saying who I am, but the experience of being alive is is kind of undefinable because it's happening in the moment and it's sensory and kinesthetic. Sorry, that's a really rambling <laughs> answer, but you know, no, and the, it's and fascinating. I,
0: um, no, I was just going to say that. Um, I mean, what you said about it about transitioning being a very specific experience. I mean, I, I remember. Certainly, certainly your book is very different from something like, um, you know, Middlesex, the Jeffrey Udenity's book that turns, you know, turns um, hermaphrodites into s- sort of a metaphor. And it, I feel like it's very clumsy and um, and uh, patronizing, really. Um, and so I was wondering, were you worried about turning that sort of experience into a metaphor about grounding it enough so that, um, It felt um, not just genuine, but um, uh, non salacious, I guess.
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. I guess for me, I didn't even... I knew I wanted to explore something around trans identity in the book, but I actually didn't realise Georgie, who's the, the the child and later the woman, um, who's the trans character in the book, I actually didn't realise uh, she was trans until a good bit in. So... Um, and I guess realising, uh, you know, can be read as choice. So I because originally the you know her story was part of, of a different novel um yeah I guess so it wasn't ever so I didn't start off with the idea of a metaphor or a theme I knew I, I was interested like even in my first novel there's an aspect of Lucy who's the main character that 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 she's she's on the she's there's some elements which are which are dovetailing or edging into trans identity though it's though it's not really explicated I don't go into it very much but with this one it was more like mm i kind of yeah i have a feeling i have a feeling one character here a feeling character here is going to be trans so it wasn't i want to use it as a metaphor but mm-hmm. i i was very concerned like once i did begin writing it and writing georgie explicitly as trans and and digging into that i was very concerned about authenticity about um about it being real i was i I, and i guess one of the things i really wasn't interested in was the cinderella story it's like oh my god you know i'm going to like which i think i think some texts have done it brilliantly trans america for example i I think is a wonderful text for the film but Mm -hmm. i think there's an element of like once i get my genitals sorted out oh everything will be fine I really right. wasn't interested in that and also I, I just felt there was something about the whole um, let's focus on the surgery that that we didn't wasn't really I mean I'd like at the time I was writing it there was this thing called uh, was it like transsexual hospital or something like that on telly and it was I just thought it was very I thought that was a bit patronizing I thought like okay there's a level of where I'm sure it's very interesting to somebody who really needs the information blah 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 but yeah I was a concern and I interviewed a lot of people and I got challenged a lot so I had I remember I mean I was challenged early on where I was like going to do I I think in the back of my mind I was going to do the whole crime game thing where it's the reveal so the reveal of the gender is the big Mm -hmm. thing and I read I was in a residency in upstate New York and I was being very coy I'm very coy when I'm working on stuff because I don't like to over talk it and 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 um, I do a lot of talking about it once it's written, but <laughs> before I just I'm just worried that I'll 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 work it out in my head and then I won't I won't have enough to keep me going through the the gnarly bit of writing. Sure. And and an artist there was going, oh, I said, yeah, it's about I, I, the characters, you know, questioning their identity. And this young kind of very cocky, uh, confident New York artist went, oh, so she's like trans? And I was like, yeah. And I was like. Oh, and then I started thinking, hmm, OK, so what if I don't have it as the big reveal? What if I'm what if I really own this from the beginning of so Georgie is Georgie as a child and she's Georgia as an adult. So what, from the beginning of Georgia's narrative, what if I really own this um, and how can I own it and make it feel really not a secret, but also not like I'm hammering hammering like I like to write almost like I come in late into a character's life, so that when the reader is reading the character they feel they've arrived in a conversation with somebody who's already formed so that there would be a sense of like, Georgia completely takes this for granted and that the reader would too. So that was really interesting. And then I had other challenges. I met a fantastic trans man in Berlin and I had a a storyline which was a bit kind of soapy, I guess. And he was going, oh my God, you know, that's (laughs) so, uh, it's so predictable and it's so, you know, such a cliche. And And he really challenged me about ideas I'd had And I was... A bit devastated, but I knew it was really good to feel flattened and deflated. And I and I met people with very different types of trans experience. So there was again in Berlin a woman called Julia and she was um she was like, Well, you know, fuck anybody who says I need to change my body. This wrong body bullshit. You know, like I love my body. So, you know, just because I don't conform to what you think a woman should look like or what a woman's body should look like, really that's your problem. It's not mine so there was this range from people who were very very anxious to pass and and be seen to be fully transitioned to people who were like no no i mean i know what i am and and i kind of i suppose i positioned like I'm, I'm a bit of a cautious person in some ways in my in my life. So I, I guess I was. And George, Georgie, Georgia, struck me as a very brave person in some ways, but also quite cautious. So I positioned her more in where she is anxious and concerned about passing. Um, yeah. So, but it's a huge. There's also the whole argument about endocrinology at the moment. So there's a this fantastic surgeon who's he's an endocrinologist, I should say. So he, you know, he was he works a lot with twins so you might have one twin twins and then maybe they're both biologically born with a penis and then one twin really strongly identifies a female and the other doesn't and they identify as male and then what he'll do is he'll work on endocrine um, interventions hormonal interventions and you can see i mean there's where you've got the evidence so you see two children at six and they could be boys or girls because children are basically hermaphroditic looking apart from their genitals before puberty and then Maybe they, at 11, they're they they're just, you know, prepubescent. They still look like they could be boys, they could be girls. Then one of them starts taking interventions. And at 16, clearly a boy, clearly a girl. And that was really interesting. When I was looking at those pictures, it just made me think about, particularly for trans people who are anxious to feel you know who who want to look like what they think they you know to to it's like it's not what they think they look like because that's patronizing but it's like who who really wants who that, that image is important to them or that you know and so I think that like it's an incredibly complex area and um and also like while I might have some sense of like well I've my own sense of my own gender not being not certainly not being right down at the end of, of this of one spectrum of one end of the spectrum. I still felt, that, you know, it's really important in somebody else's in a story which is not fully mine to, to honor it. So I guess I was, I was I was I was there were two things I was looking for. I was looking for authenticity, a ring of truth, but also doing things a little bit differently. So for example, Georgia is attracted to men. And that's un that was unusual. Most of the people i spoke to would have been when they were not presenting so say like if they were male to female they would have been in relationships with women and when they transitioned and um, they were still in relationships with women or uh, you know so certainly with male to female women most of the women i speak, spoke to had been you know would have been were now lesbians so mm-hmm. I, I was i was interested in a woman who was always attracted to men and and still was attracted to men after transitioning you know and that it's sort of an, an you know cuz i'm i'm attracted to men um, sexually a lot more than I'm attracted to women so that I felt like I, I wanted to explore that a bit so uh, yeah so the, I've all you know like um, it's kind of again like I have all these personal little interests and hooks into the, into it but I felt it was really important to do it right and to be and to, to be challenged along the way yes and then ultimately, I guess, so that the that the, the experience of Georgia in the book would read for what it was. And then the resonances that came out of it when I started exploring the Sudetenland and ethnic identity and national identity, that felt like a very interesting doubling, twinning in a way. You know, I just kept seeing correspondences.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, your use of the word authenticity is interesting because it, I feel like um, when we start talking about certain um, demographics uh, of characters in literature, it, there becomes a sort of, um, at least when they they're sort uh, you know introduced into main, quote unquote mainstream literature, there are these sort of very rigid accepted storylines. Like for, you know, when once gay literature started being um, written about in sort of mainstream literary coverage on a regular basis, it was just coming out stories for, for years. That was the only thing that um, mm-hmm. that mainstream literature was in any, in any way uh, interested in was just coming out stories. <laughs> so you could have literary coming out stories and anything else was, was still too marginalized and weird. Um, but yeah, with now in literature with trans stories, it does seem like the kind of like the, the reveal or the, um, the surgery, like the actual physical transformation is what the story is supposed to be about. Um, so it's interesting that you tried to decentralize that, um, from, from the storyline.
1: Yeah. I mean, basically I was trying to look at it like, what if I was, you know, what if I'm Georgia? Like, I mean, I always try to identify with my characters and And it was something one woman said to me, um, I I don't even know know if she's, but I just got the feeling, you know, it's like people who are important, you know, at the end of the day, relationships are important and it's the relationships people have with other people and it doesn't matter whether you're a suicide bomber or whether you're a trans person who's transitioning or whether you're you know an irish middle-aged middle-class person writing a novel you know you you have to live and you have to have relationships and it was yeah so getting 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 away from the whole oh it's all about the surgery or oh it's all about georgia coming out as trans um i I, it sort of allowed me. It's almost like that thing in um, story structure in classical Aristotelian, where you have your 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 two acts, and you know, and then this, it's like there's always um, there's always the resolution of of the problem. But the interesting thing, which is often in the third act, are the consequences of the resolution. So yeah, you know, um, so Rochester and Jane Eyre get together at the end of Jane Eyre. But well, what happens next? You know. <laughs> that interests me, you know. Okay, so you've come out as gay, right? What happens next? How are you going to live your life? You've, you know, um, chosen a particular career path. Great, you know, like you, 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 you get into medical college, but what happens next? And I think. Um, I think there's something about like I'm a I'm a an addict, not an addict, but I absolutely love long form television. And I think there's something about this multi season like it's very novelistic, and mm-hmm. it's all about consequences because I mean TV gobbles up story, and you can't have longers and the way that you can even with some literature, even some art house films. Yeah, you've got to have action and you've got to have story. So you're constantly finding problems, resolving them, and then teasing out the consequences. And I think consequences, for me, are the, are really interesting. So a character makes a choice. What are the consequences of that? And, I mean, I think ultimately that's literature is about the exploring of consequences. So I guess making that decision to not you know, Georgia's come out years ago. And I mean, okay, she's still dealing with the reverberation of coming out with, and it wasn't the coming out to her partner that was the problem, it was the consequences of coming out were the issue. And that, and that kind of interested me. So she's come out and her partners accepted that, but then what happens? And that's I think that's life a lot of the time. Oh, I'm gonna buy a house. Brilliant, brilliant. Oh, okay, now I've got the house. What do I do with it? And who am I living with? And who are my neighbors? And how far is it to work? And that's a really banal example. But I think, yeah, so that that I think um, you know, and it's really and I think somehow as well, this wasn't I wasn't I wasn't clever, cleverly aiming to do this. Uh, there was something kind of very ordinary about, even though a lot happens in beautiful pictures, like the, the basic kind of structure for nearly all the chapters is a day in the life, you know. Uh, so like that's kind of boring. Do you know what I mean? Like there's something, <laughs> there was something in me that was obviously going, you know, because my first novel was very Baroque and there's, you know, it's about drugs and violence. And, you know, it's an epic kind of, it's a, somebody's lifetimes. So and there's a lot happening and it's a very heightened the world. And this was like suburban middle-class people a day in the life. I mean I'm a bit like I love the action so I put in stuff but I I, you know I there was something I was definitely I think unconsciously or through my imagination trying to challenge myself. What about if I make all this very ordinary? Does that make sense?
0: Yeah yeah and you know it's funny too because um, when people talk about oh how does the novel sort of regain relevance um, what, one thing that people say is, well, novels have to be shorter because nobody has attention span anymore. And, you know, people like to consume Twitter <laughs> more mm-hmm. than they like, you know. And, of course, that now you wrote like a, what is it, 600 page two. Well, yeah, Hellfire was um, quite long as well. Um, and But I appreciated that because it was just my companion for, you know, 10 days or however long it took me to read it while I was traveling. It was just like, oh, you know, here's my... Here's my friend for this, this span of time. Um, I think there's still a lot to be said about, um, said for um, these deeply immersive seeing all the kind of nuance of, um, uh, of a person's existence and that um, we don't have to assume that the reader is an idiot and can only pay attention for three paragraphs at a time
1: yeah I mean I think look I think everything goes and um like I really like long books and I like writing long books so you know but equally I think if somebody you know has the the cuts path to to do something really really short or do a, a novel that's got really short chapters that's great but I just think I, I kind of know my I'm, I'm starting to get to know myself better as a writer and really, I mean, I love a long book, so why wouldn't I write one? You know, I I think I think as well, there's something in it, like what I love with in writing long is that there's um like it's like making a really big jigsaw puzzle, you know, putting that together. There's it's got to the the length always has to be deserved so and earned. So it's like how can I you know some so things have to happen and also you know there's it's a, it's a question of different dimensions you know um like certainly with beautiful pictures it was like really plugging into the the details of each character so each character has a, de- a day or two days or three days in which the reader gets to know them but it's like in life, in every day, I am remembering back, I'm obsessing about the future, I'm, you know, I'm meeting somebody. So I'd I, i I'd been very, I'd been influenced by a novel called es geht on gut* by a, an Austrian writer called Arno Geiger. And again, he had a, he had a metaphor for... Austria, which was this game that kind of repeated through the book. But it was basically structured in eight very long chapters and then a lot of smaller chapters in between. So I kind of stole that structure and each of the long chapters was it took place over one day from the point of view of a single character, um, and each character had two two of these long chapters, and I really liked that. I thought it was a really, really intelligent way to bring you into a person. I mean, I I didn't. His went over a span of 100 years, so it was a very epic structure, whereas Beautiful Pictures is much more condensed but um it's kind of, yeah so and I mean a part part of get like a lot of the things choices I make are accidental or I fall into them so I hadn't set out with that in mind but as I was writing the characters I felt you know oh I think this might work what if I what if I what if I go with a day here and then oh well what if I give them each a day and what day will that be and you oh, how can, what can happen, you know? <laughs> and it's sort of, again, it's like that scary thing with writing. It's just, I don't know, for me, like I'm, I'm in fear so much of the time. It's like, oh, what if nothing happens? What if I pick the wrong day? Or what if they're a really boring character? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> how, can I, how can I make this be interesting? How can I make like 30 pages of this middle-aged engineer on a conference be interesting so you know there's a certain amount of fear in that and then i have to just somehow find find it you know um yeah so that. That, that, um, that kind of, that idea of immersion, I mean, I love that. I love coming out of a book and kind of almost having to gasp for air and feeling like I really, I really got to know these people and I'm caring about them and feeling that they're kind of in my head afterwards and I'm thinking about them. You know, it's a really, I think it's a real gift. Like I always feel very privileged when, when somebody, when I come, come away from a book, book with that experience. It's like oh, and I want to I want to go back to them, you know, and I want to reread the book. I, I just love having that feeling.
0: Yeah, and um, another thing that I really enjoyed is, in a lot of ways, this is a from from my reading of it, um, both about the building of and the dismantling of identity, um, because you you know you have this character who who's doing this sort of active search uh, or interrogation of identity. Um, but then you have this weird little subplot isn't quite the right word. Um, but, um, I'm not even sure what we call like a, like a strange frame around the book that has to do with, um, German identity versus Czech identity and how the borders of these two, um, uh, nations and peoples keeps shifting and changing, and historical responsibility, and um, and so on and so forth. Retaliation, uh, revenge, um, but basically challenging the idea that we have a solid sense of self um, in any in any way, shape, or form that we can pin down. Um, I really loved it, but it seems so odd. <laughs> um, <laughs> Um, Which is what I loved about it. But um, how did these two things come together in your mind, I guess? They came
1: together through the characters. So... um... Again, like, I, didn't, I never set out to write a book about Bohemia and Bohemian <laughs> identity. It's like I would have run a mile if I thought that's what I was doing, because it would have felt like too much work. Um, yeah. But what happened was, like, so the book really started with the three characters who are in the, the 1970s with David and, um, Georgie and Lotte so David is Georgie's father and then Lotte is this Anglo-German woman who comes to clean for them and I had very little in David's point of view and when I did my very first um tranche of work on the book was mainly Georgie's point of view as a child and then and then some of Lotte's point of view but I knew very I knew pretty much from the beginning that Lotte looked like she was English and sounded like she was English um, she was actually German, but she said she was from Czechoslovakia. And I've no I had I still have no idea ha, where I got that that information from. That was just I just knew this. Um I, I mean I think I must have he- picked up or heard something about um the Sudetenland and the Sudeten Germans in in Britain. I must have heard that, and and it had gone into my unconscious and and I registered there. But I just knew this, but I, I, I had no conscious awareness of how this could be. But I I I did. I mean, the book originally um was going to be part of what I think will be my third novel, which was about an Irish girl in Germany. Oh, pairing so I, I was pretty clear that i was going to be digging into german identity into to some extent so in one sense yes i knew the book was somehow going to be exploring german identity um but then i was as i as i got further into the work as I, I was reading up a lot about um i mean as as somebody with with part german heritage the idea of war guilt complicity and enabling facilitation of fascist regimes and oppressive regimes is really it's really important i mean even i grew up in the 70s and um uh, like i i you know i was very aware of the fact that I was, as being even part German, I'm, I'm quarter German, that, the, you know, the Nazis had something to do with me, that I had something to do with the Nazis on some um, deep historical level. So I was um, so I was always going to be exploring something around German identity. And as I got into the book, I was reading up about that, reading up about the fascist era, the Third Reich, blah, blah. Um, and then I started trying to look into... I was thinking about I was reading about the Poles and the Polish, um, the way that the Nazis treated the Poles, which was absolutely appalling. And I was thinking, have I got it wrong? Is is a lot of Polish? The you know I was I knew her mother was the one who was German. Um, was from czechoslovakia and then eventually um i was a few years into the book at this stage i did some research um i i I'd come across i was googling stuff like crazy and i came across a book um talking about german post-war migrants in britain and i contacted the writer she was an academic in london and i happened to be going over to england to research um Bristol. So I arranged to go down to London, meet this writer. And I said, look, I have this idea. This probably won't work, but this is what it is. I said, you know, she's, she looks like she's English, sounds English. She kind of is English, but she's actually ethnically German or she's German, but you know, she's from Czechoslovakia. And uh, Inga looked at me and she went, oh, but, you know, have you not heard of the Westward Ho and the the 1,000 Sudeten German women who came over to England and Britain after the war? And I was like, No. (laughs) And in the back of my mind, I was going, oh, no, the Sudetenland, I'm going to have to research that. I know nothing about that. Oh, no, damn crap. So then um, as a result of that, I started reading about um, Bohemia and the Sudetenland, which was the regions that the Germans had settled and which after the First World War and after the Treaty of Versailles when Czechoslovakia was granted independent status as a state, that was mainly where the German speakers were concentrated in those border regions in the mountain areas and i i just became i just became completely fascinated so i was i was in uh, this was at the same time i was meeting and um, people with trans experience i was talking to them and then i was reading all this stuff about bohemia and i was going but bohemia is like a trans country it's like it was neither one thing nor the other it was very fluid or it would sometimes it was German sometimes it was Czech and and I was just I just felt like really there were these connections popping in my mind but it had come from trying to figure out who Lotta was and where she had come from and where her mother had come from and wanting to get that right I guess and um, so then I was thinking, oh, wow, this is really interesting. And the, the history was, it's so fascinating. It also made me think of Northern Ireland and and uh, the relationship between the Republic and the North and, and, and both of us and Britain. And that felt very, you know, again, growing up in the 70s, I mean, like that was huge. The war in the North was a really, like, nobody called it the war. It was always the Troubles. But, you know, that was a war. That was, and that really, I grew up in a, you know, on a country... Well, according to some people, a country that was at war and according to other people, a country that was beside a country that was at war, depending on your perspective. And again, that idea that something would look completely different from two different points of view, depending on your perspective, depending where you were standing, depending on your agenda and depending on your history the same thing could look completely different. So then I was thinking, oh man, because I'm very, um, I'm kind of greedy, and I was like, oh man, I'd love to, I'd love to get, get some of this, this Bohemian history. It's too good. Nobody knows about, nobody knows about the expulsion of the Germans after the Second World War. I didn't right. know about it. You know, like these people were basically, you know, ethnically cleansed. Nobody knows about this. God, you know, and I just felt I'm always interested in secret histories, and I was like, oh no, I have a duty. I felt I had a duty actually to write about it, um, but I was thinking like, well. You know, there's the kind of family saga thing, which can be really interesting. Actually, I, I recently read a book by a, an Italian author, Francesca Melandri, which is about a similar region, but um, in the north now of Italy, but would have been part of Austro, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and um, before Versailles. And I was thinking, oh, so I could do a family saga, but I really don't want to do a family saga. I'm just that would bore me. And then I started getting the idea of these lots. They were like lots in an. And I'd been given, I'd met a uh, a Sudeten German woman who'd come to to Britain after the war and spoken to her and done interviews with her and, you know, spoke to her about her experience. And she'd sent me this beautiful little book of photographs of the region, of the German speaking regions that were now gone. And the book was called Schöne Bilder der Verlorenen Heimat. beautiful pictures of the lost homeland. Mm. And I just I just fell in love with that little book because Hilda, I could feel Hilda's it felt something like and I, I use it in in my own novel, but it felt really precious, like a very precious object. And I started then I thought I just started writing Lot One would be this book. And it wasn't Hilda's book because Hilda is not the Sudeten German character in in the novel. And then I thought, "Oh God! I mean, how do you tell this history without it being like really, really boring?" Right. And yeah. I'd also, I'd also been influenced by by Louis de Bernier's novel *Birds Without Wings*, which looked at the emergence and the, the the disintegration of the Ottoman Empire, but also the amazing kind of experiences around identity people had had, and that was that kind of cycled around a an ethnic cleansing event as well. And I really liked what he did was he had the history of Ataturk. So he had that. He had these very beautiful, personal, human chapters, where, which are pure story, old-fashioned style, old fashioned storytelling. And then he had these weird little chapters that were almost like news bulletins documenting Ataturk's um, political career, his rise and fall. And I thought, I quite like the idea of, you know, like kind of wedging these things into what's basically a traditional narrative. So bear in mind, I don't, I'm I was already thinking about wedging the past and the present of this family unit in, in Ireland. And then I was thinking, well, yeah, why don't I wedge this other thing in and and, and just do it, just go for it. And then I was thinking with the history, well, I, I kept seeing maps and I was researching, I was Googling and I was seeing these maps. I thought, I'll just use maps. And then it became, then it was like once I started with one object, all the other objects and the camera suggested themselves. And then I started having great fun and thinking, okay, like, you know, how do you describe like the most atrocious, you know, Series of events in human memory in in Western Europe, which is the Holocaust and is the the Third Reich. How would you how would you you know like how do you get that down to like five pages? And <laughs> you know how do you how can you be angry about it and how can you be how can you convey the horror of it, but still somehow still somehow, and this sounds really wrong even when I say it. Entertain. And I don't mean in a kind of like, how can you get it in there, but get it working, get it dynamic, get it, kind of have it, give it a, give it something that sort of, that really works on the imagination as well as the emotion. So, so, you know, so then I, I ended up doing that as a a kind of libretto, but also um, I'd, I'd worked as an actor and and Brecht was, was brilliant at that. So he'd like you know, have a very sad scene and then it would be like totally undercut and and that idea of like you're you're sinking into the emotion of it and then you're undercut and then you feel angry and whatever. So yeah, so that was how the Wunderkammer emerged. But then, you know, because as you say, it's so odd and different, I had to then do an awful lot of work to to dig into my so often what I do is I make a choice and I write something. But then then and that'll be instinctive, but then for some in some cases, not all, I have to start going, well, what's this about? Especially if it's a bit weird. You know, like I'm asking people, I'm asking people, a lot of people, you know, and I'm asking a lot of the audience. And and certainly I beta readers, my first round of readers, people will come back on, well, how does that fit in with everything else? And I thought, yeah, actually that's a really good question. And I'm not I'm not fully aware. I was getting enough I was being asked it enough that I wasn't fully aware. So then I did a lot more work on Uncovering what it meant to me personally, and what it meant to the characters within the the scope of the novel. So I'm not going to explain that because it's there to be read into or not read into. But there is a there is a deeper logic at play which binds it very much into which makes it for me essential and makes an essential part of the novel, not just as a as a kind of an illustration. Of, of Bohemian history or as a, as a kind of correspondence with Georgie trans identity. So, so yeah, so that was kind of, that, that was a really, you know, like I was knocking my head against walls for a while, but yeah, that was how the Wunderkammer emerged. But I kind of like at the points, you know, like, because the book went to an awful lot of editors before Dan Bulger in New Island um, picked it up and, and, Got it completely, and some you know, like some editors did not understand what I was doing, and and uh, there will be some readers who will be like, "Oh well, it was great," you know. Apart from all that stuff about Bohemia, but it is <laughs> it is relevance, um, you know, and and yeah, but I also felt like fuck it, you know, you only live once. I can I swear you only live yeah, once, and and like what's the point of making something is to do something. You know, like, okay, there are like Seneca said, there are only seven stories under the sun. There's nothing new under the sun. I'm you know, like I'm I'm not I'm not doing brain surgery here. I'm not finding a cure for cancer. I'm I'm just I'm just telling stories. But look at it's like, fuck it, why not do why not do this and more? And why not why not mess around? And why not take you know, it just felt like fuck it, why not do it? You know, and and I just yeah, yeah. So that that's kind of partly it as well.
0: Yeah, and I mean the Germans. Um, the Germans have a good way of um, uh, kind of showing how to deal with these very uh, fucked up, serious issues in a, in, a, in a storytelling mode, in a in an entertainment mode. You know, again, entertainment not being uh, you know um, a trivializing way. Um, you know, I'm thinking of um, in in America at least we don't have in our literature, in our dominant literature, a tradition of dealing with um, the dark side of American history. It it mostly does not show up in our literature. um, (laughs) So, uh, but, you know, of course, post-war Germans from Brecht to Heinrich Boll to Alexander Kluge to Krista Wolf, you know, are actively engaging in these issues, um, which is kind of what uh, when I was reading it, I was sort of pulling down a lot of German writers um, for, uh, uh, you know, just uh, to uh, accompany my reading of your book. Um, because it, it, there is, a, 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 in the German literary tradition, um, certainly a willingness to go to these darker places and, and you know, set off fireworks there. Um, so yeah, that's, yeah. You know, that's
1: brilliant that's a lovely way of describing it yeah yeah it's to illuminate it you know um not to dwell in the darkness for its own sake but really to illuminate it you know why does this stuff happen and what again what are the consequences you know like on the soul and and i think and it's interesting like brecht brecht was jewish of course and there's that you know that the modernists, the great modernists, um, a lot of them were Germans. A lot of them were were Jewish Germans. So you know, in the the film tradition, and that sense of play, I think is I think is what I'm I, I meant to say. Like this, you know, you can you playing like that's how children learn. They they learn through play and mistakes, and yeah, and I guess there was an element where I really wanted to 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 play, you know, to kind of also to because um, it's quite a sad book. So to kind of tonally tonally make a bit of it, because it's a big book as well, to tonally shift things. So you're there maybe uh, getting quite sad with some of the characters or a bit annoyed with some of the characters and then bang, you're into something else that's making you think and it's a bit faster and it's, it's a slightly different pace. So yeah, so there was that too.
0: Um, do you get... Um... Well, it seemed like with Hellfire, there was also maybe an amount of research that had to be done, or at least with like the, um, um, occult is maybe not quite the right word, but certainly with the tarot and that sort of thing, um, was that information you already had? Or was that also like kind of like a, a, a load of research that had to be done before it could be written?
1: So, all, all the kind of, um, all the tarot, all that comparative religion, uh, no, that was, that I came to Hellfire with that. The stuff that I had to research was um, not even so much kind of like everyday drug culture because I was working with people in a treatment centre, but the socio-political stuff, like when did heroin first come to Dublin and how, if you were 14 and you had you know you'd been you were a girl and you were you'd done something borderline criminal where would you go like what where what facility would you go to so a lot of the research I did and, and also like what what was the experience in the 70s and the 80s of of using um various drugs but the no I'd, I'd um, the tarot I had I'd learned to read tarot um at I think was I was I fourteen. I was I'd done a play in a youth theatre, and Peter Sheridan, who's the brother of Jim Sheridan, the filmmaker, um, had co co-written the play. And the character I was playing was t- was really into you know uh, mysticism and the tarot. So uh, so I I needed to so they needed to get me... So I needed a tarot pack, and I needed to kind of have some basic familiarity. So then Jim Sheridan had a tarot pack, so. I was given that, and I, ne- I didn't realise, but that's how you, you that's how you should you should never buy a tarot pack. It should always be given to you. So I read, I started reading tarot for myself and for other people after that. And I mean, it's a bit like it's a divination, um, it's a divination device like that, like the I Ching. So you you know, it's a way of maybe uncovering psychological patterns and likely consequences of of choices and stuff like that. Um, so I was you know, I've always been really I was, I was, think I was probably more interested in it back then than I am now. But I, I also absolutely loved the, um, the Ryder Haggard. I think I said, no, it's not, that's the weight, Rider weight. Yeah, the um, pack. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, and I, 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 it kind of became like, um, a sort of a, an extension of my own psyche. I could, you know, I, I remember I was reading somebody's cards for them. I was twenty two or twenty three. I mean, how precocious is that? Thinking you can read somebody's cards. <laughs> and uh, this woman was, uh, was you know, and I saw. I think it was the three of cups and something. I said, oh yeah. So somebody just asked you to marry them. And I and it, like normally I'd have been a bit more vague, and she went yes. I was like, oh, okay. And then I found I was, if I just trusted my unconscious and said, almost like the first thing that came to mind, it was almost like, it's almost like when I'm writing, going into a very into a space that's very blurry at the edges. That I would be obviously, you know, there's a skill with any kind of divination. Anybody who's reading cards, they're they're very good at cold reading people. They're picking up body language. They're they're picking up changes in smell. They're picking up. Uh, you know, sort of cues they mightn't even be aware of picking up. And that's where you get that kind of um, gradually their interpretation is approaching the person's experience. So, no, I mean, with Hellfire, I was what I was interested in with that was because Buck Whaley, who's this ghostly figure who kind of he never really appears, but he sort of dominates um, Lucy Naylor's um, worldview, And he was like, he was a Baroque figure. So I I was kind of, I guess it was something about the tarot ideology that was, you know, it's a a Baroque and a Jaco, it's a Jacobean ideology. And it seemed to fit very well with this world of, you know, this unregulated, almost feudal world of the heroin trade. You know, because it, it it has a world, it has its logic, it is a business, it's, you know, there's a big profit motive there, but its structure is very interesting. So it was that, and, and you know, and also I thought, like, so here's this, you know, kid, and she's she's got issues with reading. So what is she going to be? What are her texts going to be? And I just thought it was kind of a nice text to give her, that she had this text and this Bible that she could refer to. It was a a way of making meaning, really. And also, I guess it kind of, again, I wanted to get away from the sort of... um, I suppose tropey representations of like, oh God, we're all we're all in the gutter and it's all shit and we're all really poor. <laughs> and, and and I wanted something that was a bit kind of like that had a bit of richness and colour and was a bit like, you know, um, yeah, a bit more, there was a bit more maybe um, magic to it. So yeah. Um so yeah, that's where that came from. But I uh, but I didn't no, I didn't do a lot of research on that. I just I did come to the the the, the novel with that. As
0: a as a tarot card reader myself, <laughs> um, who has clients, um, I really appreciated the way that you wrote about the tarot that it was um, sort of a lived-in experience rather than um, you know. Um, so many people, when they write about the tarot, have these very rigid definitions of what cards mean and everything, and it felt very um, fluid and contextual the way that you the way that you wrote about it. Um, I really appreciated that. <laughs> Oh, thank
1: you. My pleasure. Well, I guess you know because I because I because I'd read them myself. I I was bringing I was bringing my sense, and then then they got yeah they got another layer of meaning. I guess because Lucy's not me, so how would Lucy interpret them, and what language would she use? So maybe yeah, maybe that's where there was probably layers of familiarity with it. Um,
0: wonderful. Um, we are. We're basically out of time. I feel like I could talk to you for a really long time. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Joe Cilio, Alex Ramsey, and Brett Boehm. For more podcasts, please visit foreverdogproductions.com.